Welcome to Books of Titans. I'm Jason Staples, together with Eric Rostad, and this podcast is dedicated to the influences of influencers, the books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectual scientists, and others. And we'll talk about what makes these books so important and influential, and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about these important works. Today, we're going to cover the book Dune by Frank Herbert. A book with the uh, unassuming mantle of science fiction's supreme masterpiece, uh, often thought to be the finest work of science fiction uh, out there in terms of uh, of um, literature. Literature. Kelly Starrett is uh, who recommended the book in in Tools of Titans. Uh, Kelly is a uh, performance coach, trains a lot of CrossFit athletes. One of the uh, early uh, coaches in the CrossFit world, uh, also a DPT, a doctor of physical therapy, uh, known for being a supple leopard, uh, in addition to being a, uh, a mighty fine man, apparently, but, uh, he is the, uh, the, the author of, uh, the supple leopard, uh, which is a book on mobility and basic, uh, treatment for joints and muscles and so on, uh, applying the basic principles or many of the basic principles uh, of physical therapy and uh, manipulation and, and bodily manipulation and so on. So uh, well, good you, stuff. You found that book quite, quite helpful. Chris. Oh yeah. I use, I use uh, becoming a supple leopard all the time. Uh, it's, uh, it's down underneath my coffee table where uh, I keep, uh, you know, cause I tend to do lots of, well, actually it's a milk table for me since I don't drink coffee, but uh, anyway, uh, I, I keep it under there because, uh, you know, I do my, a lot of my rolling and, uh, and mobility work to, uh, and such. Uh, maybe talk down about there. what kind of rolling so we don't confuse our uh, listeners. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Foam rolling. Although foam rollers are, okay. are for the weak. Uh, you know, if you want to use battle stars or other things a little bit more, you know, that kind of rolling is what I mean. Okay. Uh, you know, cause, uh, Moe's restaurant has a, they've got a billboard in Atlanta right now that says been rolling in Atlanta since whatever year they started. And, uh, <laughs> it's one of those restaurants kind of like mellow mushroom where you walk in and you're, yeah, they've, they've got some ulterior motives going on, going on, but, uh, good food. So, uh, can't, can't complain. But yeah, that that uh, becoming a supple leopard book. I thought you were going to say that is your coffee table because the book is so large. Ah, uh, no, no, no. It's not. That, that's it. It it barely. It's barely a dent compared to something like uh, like Dune, actually. But uh, yeah. no, I I uh, I do a lot of myofascial release and uh, uh, and that sort of thing. And uh, becoming a supple leopard is a is a great resource for that stuff. Although you know, again, uh, if you are familiar with uh, enough uh, physical therapy yourself, or if you are a DPT yourself. Uh, one uh, physical therapist that I know likes to say that uh, Kelly in uh, Becoming a Supple Leopard and just general approach tends to, uh, you know, he, he has a lot of really good things to say, but he tends to, you know, basically uh, color everything with the color orange. Uh, so, you know, there are other other approaches that are that are necessary for certain things. So, uh, you know, it's not the uh, panacea for everything. And sometimes you may have a real injury, a, a significant injury that needs a different kind of treatment. And Kelly would be the first person to acknowledge that. So important for those listeners who uh, might run out and grab uh, Becoming a Supple Leopard, which I, again, do 
highly recommend. Well, and going into the our book uh, this week of Dune, speaking of, of big books, the author of, of Dune is, is Frank Herbert. He, uh, he became famous for science fiction, and Dune is just the, one, of, one of many books in the series. Uh, but in addition to that, he was also a newspaper journalist, photographer, short story writer, book reviewer, ecological consultant, and lecturer. This is a pretty interesting little tidbit here. He was a distant relative of the controversial Republican Senator Joseph McCarthy, whom he referred to as Cousin Joe. Uh, McCarthy was part of the Red Scare, thinking everyone was communist, so in uh, weeding out communists in the, in the U.S. government. So Herbert was appalled to learn of McCarthy's blacklisting of suspected communists from working in certain careers and believed that he was in, endangering essential freedoms of citizens of the United States. So we see a lot of, the, of uh, political uh, undertones in, in the writing of, of Dune, so uh, it'll be fun to, to talk about that. But yeah, he uh, pretty interesting that his uh, distant relative was McCarthy himself. <laughs> yeah. And then I wanted to just highlight a few quotes that are from the very end of the book, and, and they're from Frank's son, so here's, here's the first one. Despite all the work Dune required, my father said it was his favorite book to write. He used what he called a technique of enormous detail in which he studied and prepared notes over a four-year period between 1957 and 1961. So that, that's just the notes collection period, four years. Then he wrote and rewrote the book between 1961 and 1965. So we're looking at an eight, eight to nine-year total, total time of, of writing the book Dune. And it's no surprise if you read this book <laughs> that, that yeah. it took that long. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the, the second quote I wanted to highlight, a student of psychology, he, again, this is Frank's son speaking of Frank, the author, he understood the subconscious and liked to say that Dune could be read on, on any of several layers that were nested beneath the adventure story of a, of a messiah on a desert planet. Ecology is the most obvious layer but alongside that are politics, religion, philosophy, history, human evolution, and even poetry. So I wanted to share those two, two quotes, just one of the, the time period we're looking at of, of, that it took to write this book. And then two, the, the different ways that, uh, that people have read into this book. So a lot of people see a lot of political uh, commentary uh, and even relation to, to U.S. politics uh, of, of what was going on at that time. Other people see a lot of religious overtones, philosophy, history, well, it's it, And it's fair to say not just that people read these things into them, but Herbert himself is explaining that all of those layers are in there and that they that the book can and, and should be read with those layers in mind, which is interesting. Yeah. And then did you have a few other Yeah, I had a couple from others Yeah, from, from the end uh, as well. I, 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 I thought uh, this also was interesting uh, where he said, you know, having studied politics carefully, my father believed that heroes made mistakes, mistakes that were simplified by the number of people who followed such leaders slavishly. And, uh, you know, again, I, I think he, it's interesting because he, he really goes out of his way in this book to create round characters and to create realistic scenarios in a fantasy, unrealistic kind of world, but to, to, to bring in the way that things work so that 
you can sort of experience them and then see what some of the potential pitfalls would be. Uh, and, and, you know, it's very clear that he, he wanted the reader to understand potential mistakes, potential uh, problems with the way that things are. This, this book is in many ways a critique of the ways that human beings tend to go about things in terms of government and religion and, and other things, while also just being a, a something of a revelation of how those things actually work. So I thought that was, uh, I thought he, he really artfully did that. Uh, and then, uh, I, I thought this this piece this this uh, section at the end uh, that his his son brings in in as well uh, is one of the reasons that this book is so compelling. I think uh, the, his son says at the end of the book he intentionally left loose ends and said he did this to send the readers spinning out of the story with bits and pieces of it still clinging to them so that they would want to go back and read it again. A neat trick, and he pulled it off perfectly. Whether he pulled it off perfectly or not is is perhaps a matter of uh, of of readers' opinion. Although it seems that given the popularity of the book, many readers do agree with this. Uh, I do think that this technique is really important for constructing a good narrative uh, and and a compelling world. Uh, if you're going to write fiction, and really if you're going to write uh, any sort of narrative at all, you have to construct a world that is believable. And one of the things that, that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien actually talks a lot about is the necessity in a in a constructed world, in a narrative context, for leaving leaving off the edges. You you have to you have to blur the edges and you have to give the impression that there's a much, much larger world out there of which we're only seeing a piece, if the world is going to be compelling and enthralling for the viewer or for the for the listener, for the, the hearer, the reader. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is something, you know, he talks about, you know, if you've read uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, there's a character in there called Tom Bombadil. And, and you know, there's some question as to how Bombadil actually fits into the larger narrative in, in a lot of ways. And yeah, he's an important, there's actually some really important things that end up happening with the events that surround Tom Bombadil. But at the same point, you know, as any as most uh, cinematic treatments of, of Lord of the Rings have, have displayed, you can do Tolkien in Lord of the Rings perfectly well without Tom Bombadil. He's completely ancillary to the, to the story really. But Tolkien actually talks about how it's important to have that kind of character where you, you leave off and you're like, wait, what, what, what happens with like, what's going on with that guy? Like, you, you know, this person's walking by talking along the road. I mean, you know, even down to like Monty Python where you've got the guy, you know, You've got the uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. You've got the the couple couple people that are constantly walking through scenes discussing various arcane aspects of of uh, Marxist uh, philosophy. It gives you the impression that like wait wait this this whole thing like there's a larger world out there that this this doesn't quite fit in, and it makes you have to think. Well, what what Herbert does is he does a great job of giving the impression that you're only seeing a little piece of the world that he's constructed, that this is a much larger world, that there are events going on out there that just aren't part of our story, but there's lots of stuff that that's going on out there, just like the real world. Mm-hmm. And, and that makes things much, much more compelling. Uh, and I, I thought he did a fantastic job of, of, of constructing the world 
and leaving those loose ends. And actually, there is, in- interestingly, a cinematic reflection of this, uh, of, of, that te- of the necessity of that technique. There's a cinematic discussion of this in the movie Inception, where uh, in, in Christopher Nolan's uh, depiction, in Christopher Nolan's explanation, he has uh, uh, his main character, Dom Cobb, uh, explaining how dream construction in the context of that movie where you, you basically can invade other people's dreams and share them with them. And in order to share the dream, you have to construct a dream world that you can inhabit with that particular, with, the, with your fellow co-dreamer. And he says, in order to construct a world that works in a dream world, you have to make it like a maze where you, you basically you keep your character from ever wandering off the edge because as soon as the character can see that there's an edge there, he'll recognize that it's not reality. Yeah. And so you have to, you have to bend the edges and deal with, you know, uh, with, a, you have to make it so that the horizon is, you know, it, it appears distance and distant and falls off and all this. And you use all sorts of, uh, and there's this, there's a whole scene about this. You use all sorts of, of, uh, in in the movie movie world, you use all sorts of uh, uh, of uh, optical illusions and things to give the impression of continuation. But you know you, th- these are shortcuts; these are cheats, so that you don't actually have to have an infinite world. You have, you know, they use things like the infinite staircase and things like that as as an example of this. And in the storytelling world, you have to use the same kinds of rhetorical illusions to do the same the same sorts of things. And of course, Inception is Christopher Nolan's meditation on creating a fictional world like in a movie or in a in, in a narrative in any sort of narrative creation to share and inhabit with someone else by which you end up shaping their mind and and, and so on. You, you, we, we, our minds are shaped by the narratives that we share with other people. Uh, and so this is a this is a good example, a good uh, sort of partner for the way that uh, that he discusses how Herbert does that with Dune, and it's a it's it's something that I think uh, lesser storytellers often do a poor job of, and one of the reasons that that amateur novelists and amateur uh, storytellers don't do as good of a job is they are trying to explain everything and they try to make sure that, you know, all the loose ends and everything are tied up because it seems that it would seem on the front end of things that that's a necessary thing to do. But the reality is that better stories, more compelling stories are the ones that don't tie up all the loose ends and leave those fuzzy boundaries and give you the impression that you're in a larger world than just the story that's being told to you. Well, and the the other thing that was, amazing to me is, is even with them leaving the, this idea of, of there being a more expansive world out there, the level of detail they give to the world that you're reading about is, is unbelievable. I mean, both, both authors create extensive maps, um, lay of the land, everything. I mean, it's, it's just, it's just amazing. The level, the level of detail. And that was one of my favorite parts of, of, of reading this book was just, Think of the imagination that goes into creating a, a, a world, writing about it, you know, having characters in it. Uh, that that part was really really intriguing to me. So the both both Herbert and and Tolkien do an amazing job of that as well. Yeah, and 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 actually, I, I you know I think in many respects Dune when as I was reading it, I kept coming back to 
this is yeah it's 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 a different genre it's science fiction as opposed to fantasy but it really is fantasy it really is very much of a piece with something like lord of the rings so if you mm-hmm. like lord of the rings if you like you know cs lewis's space trilogy if you like uh, you know, the Chronicles of, if you liked the Chronicles of Narnia when you were a kid, this is the kind of book that's really going to appeal to you. You're going to enjoy, it'll knock your socks off. You'll love it because it's the sort of, uh, of world building and, and imaginative writing that is right up your alley. If you're the kind of person that enjoys those, those sorts of stories. I don't know. I'll, uh, I'll we're going <laughs> to the overview here and, uh, we've already I, been I went in the in... overview a little bit. What? Yeah, I um I went into to reading Dune as a sci-fi skeptic, and I came out of reading the book as a sci sci-fi skeptic. Uh, and this this just goes across the board, and, and I know what I'm saying here is is blasphemous to to you, Jason, and and probably to to many of the listeners. But I, just, whether it's a movie or a book, I've just really never been all that into science fiction, fantasy. But what's odd about what you just said is, is I really did like the Chronicles of Narnia, but didn't like the, uh, the Tolkien books as much. Um, and then even, I know it's not sci-fi, but like even a lot of the comic book movies that are out now that are popular, I just, I don't, I can't get into those either. Um, and so it, it's like anything to do with crazy worlds, I, I think part of it is just it's it's hard for me to grasp the whole world, uh, learn about the world, learn different types of of animals, creatures, all that kind of stuff. And then and then also follow the story. And so one thing I did with Dune is is I really made a, a, a effort more so than books in the past of, of really trying to take it slow and understand the world, understand the characters um, took a lot, you know, took a lot of notes and that kind of thing. Uh, but it's still, I just had a hard time with it. And, it. and and I think it is for that reason. It's like learning a language of a world without any outside application. Um, anything I learned about Dune, I could, I could apply to the other books in the Dune series, but that's it. I know there's the story there. There's a lot that, that we can gather out of the story and that's what we'll be talking about. But I just, I'd rather read a book, for instance, a, a few books later where it's Once an Eagle. That's also a novel. But you're while you're reading it, you're learning about World War One. You're learning about uh, the Cold War. You're learning, learning about World War Two, Vietnam, uh, and and that can be applied to to other books or other things that you that you read or just learning about those wars in general. Uh, so I, for for my time, I'd I'd rather read a non science fiction novel. I went in as a skeptic, came out as a skeptic, but convince me otherwise, Jason. All I have to say is boo this man. <laughs> boo. <laughs> right? Right about now is where we need uh where we need um uh the 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 booing from uh from the Princess Bride, you know, boo boo <laughs> the Queen of Refuse. Probably, probably put that in yeah. as a uh... The Queen of Filth. You know, all this, boo, you know, that that's, that's more, more or less where I, where I come in there. First of all, I'm a little bit surprised that you would have liked, if, if that's the way you, you feel about, about fantasy in general, I'm surprised you would have liked the Chronicles of Narnia because, you know, they are very much fantasy novels. 
even though yeah. they're 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 much simpler. They're I mean they're they're designed more for younger children uh, than than some of these. Th- these are young adult fantasy as opposed to those which are I suppose younger adult fantasy. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I, I got, actually I got a question, and this is something yeah. that our listeners should know at least is uh, where do you fall in on sci-fi or uh, fantasy-type fictional movies? No, that's the same thing, and that's what I was trying to get at with, like, the um, the comic book movies, whether it's Superman or, or anything. Um, well, those are ter- the Superman those. movies tend to be terrible, too, but, you know, the Marvel the Marvel Cinematic Universe is, is, yeah, Mar- is Marvel, typically just, really well I, done. I can't, get in, I can't get into Marvel. Uh, it's been the same with, with Star Wars, Star Trek. I just... I. I don't know what it is, but I can't. I can't get into those, and it's been. It's just like it's a been disease. For a while. It's like yeah, a I disease. Mean, I, I, like it when really I was a kid. Is. Well, but <laughs> I think once one thing that's interesting is like when I was a kid, I liked Star Wars, and when I was a kid, that's when I read. I didn't read the. I haven't read the whole Narnia series, but I've read at least two of the books, and but I read them when I was a kid. So I don't know if that if that's something different of when I when I read those uh, and I see. watched Star Wars, I liked it, but. As I like, I'd say high school on. I've just never been into movies that um, that are fantasy or sci-fi. I just I just have a hard time with them, and I I, I don't know why. Ah, uh, see that that brings us that brings us into uh, a little bit of um uh <laughs> a little bit of uh of light onto this where. What's happened is you've unfortunately reached that middle point of your life where you need to become like a child again. As, as C.S. Lewis himself once wrote, When I was ten, I read fairy tales in secret and would have been ashamed if I had been found doing so. Now that I am fifty, I read them openly. When I became a man, I put away childish things, including the fear of childishness and the, and the desire to be very grown up. Or even better, another quote by C.S. Lewis, which, which uh, comes from, uh, from the, uh, the foreword to his, uh, his, his line, The Witch in the Wardrobe. I wrote this story for you, but when I began it, I had not realized that girls grow, quick, grow, uh, grow quicker than books. As a result, you are already too old for fairy tales, and by the time it is printed and bound, you will be older still. But someday, you will be old enough to start reading fairy tales again. You can then take it down from some upper shelf, dust it, and tell me what you think of it. I shall probably be too deaf to to hear and too old to understand a word you say, but I shall still be your affectionate godfather. So I I think the problem here, so this, now that we've had you sitting on the couch for a couple minutes, the the real, the real problem here has been that you grew too old for fairy tales and you're not yet old enough to start reading fairy tales again. So one of these days you will, you will grow back into these things and, and then you too shall be a man, my son. Well, I need to start putting all these books into one bookshelf then, the fantasy sci-fi bookshelf, and then once I hit that age... Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's it. that's a good place to be. Um, no, I mean, I, it is interesting because I do think that there are certain personality types, there are certain people that tend to tend to really dig this stuff much more than others. Uh, I know my mother-in-law just has like zero tolerance for 
for fantasy or, you know, generally fictional world building that's not like doesn't feel exactly like this world, except yeah. that she likes romance. <laughs> right. Which, of Bobby course, up. is nothing like this world. Right. <laughs> so, you know, a romantic movie. Oh, that can be fine now. Yeah. But of course, it's nothing like this world. I, th- I think that's just as fantastic as as Dune. Right. You know, the notebook is every bit as like fantasy, as much fantasy as Dune. Uh, but, you know, Dune is far more interesting. Um, yeah. But uh, but uh, actually, beyond getting you on the analyst's couch here, I, I, a word of defense for this kind of book and its application is is worthwhile. Uh, and that is, again, going back to Inception, uh, this is this is a really, really important lesson for everybody to learn. And that's that that narrative that human beings function f- fundamentally on the basis of narrative. We don't do very well. In fact, we don't do it all when we're stripped away from the stories that we tell ourselves. Everything we do is geared off of narrative. We tell ourselves stories of who we are, where we came from, and we think of ourselves in that way. That, that's the only way that we function as human beings. Uh, Christian Smith, the, 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 the sociologist, uh, talks about this as human beings are... Uh, are are narrative animals. They're uh, they're they're storytelling animals. Is is how he refers to it. Uh, and you know, again, going back to the movie Inception, it talks about how human beings tend to be resistant to ideas that come from outside of our our sphere. A foreign idea uh, is it, it can be resisted, and and the image in the book uh, is. Actually, you know what? I'm just going to go to a couple quotes here. Uh, one is a, a quote from Inception that I'm just going to play. What is the most resilient parasite? A bacteria? A virus? An intestinal worm? Uh, what Mr. Cobb is trying to say. An idea. Resilient, highly contagious. Once an idea has taken hold in the brain, it's almost impossible to eradicate. An idea that is fully formed, fully understood, that sticks right in there somewhere. Now, the, the thing about that quote is, yeah, ideas that are fully formed, fully understood, stick, and they're Im- almost impossible to eradicate because they become a part of a person, just like a virus does. And, you know, this is something that I, as, a, as an educator, reflect on all the time because ideas are the most powerful thing in the world. Well, and I think you nailed it with a, a recent tweet you did where you de- you were describing a, um, a a particular worldview that has a narrative about a particular topic. And there's a, a very conflicting. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. To- you're, you're, uh, topic. You're, you're, you're talking you about. Said, you said group one is never going to adapt that nar- that topic because it doesn't fit in their overall narrative. Yeah, you're talking about the climate change uh, issue. Mm-hmm. And you have lots of people that, you know, the apocalyptic climate change rhetoric is never going to persuade someone who comes from an evangelical apocalypticist type uh, worldview where they're where they they hold to the idea that, you know, the, the world's going to continue getting worse and worse and earthquakes and hurricanes and all this stuff is going to increase up until the time that Jesus comes, because those are signs of the end. Well, if you're going to you're going to say, look, the earthquakes in the Atlantic have gotten so much worse and they're more frequent now than ever, which is actually not 
completely true, but Hur- even hurricanes. if it, but but even if it were true, these hurricanes are 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 you know worse than ever, and they're getting more frequent. So you know, this is a sign that we're doing something wrong, and that uh, you know that we need to we need to address this because it's a climate change problem. Well, yeah, that can work in from from one particular narrative point, but for the person who's already embraced the narrative that, well, Jesus is coming back, and these things are going to get more severe and more and increase in uh, in frequency until Jesus comes back, and these are that's the sign of it. Well, they already have a place to put that in their narrative, right? Yeah. But but the thing is, uh, the what this gets to is ideas. They're really powerful, and as an educator, I, I believe that. But it, the thing is, it's so hard; it's almost impossible to transmit a fully formed, fully understood idea from one person to another. Right? The, the quote says, "An idea that's fully formed, fully understood, that sticks." But when was the last time? you really were able to transmit a fully formed, fully understood idea from one, from you to somebody else or from somebody else to you. It almost never happens. Mm-hmm. Real learning. If, if somebody's actually going to learn, it has to happen through this process of internal discovery. So teaching in that sense, I can't teach somebody else. I can only help expose them to what they need to be able to learn, right? So, and that's why instruction from the outside, you know, lecture and this sort of thing, rarely penetrates deeply enough to have an, a lasting impact. And even if it does penetrate deeply enough for a person to begin to understand something, this is where, again, the mind resists the outside ideas. So getting back to that idea of you know climate change and, and having conflicting, uh, conflicting narratives that you're committed to, if the data point doesn't fit at, the, at this point in your narrative, you may just reject the data point. Your body, your body rejects pathogens and your mind tends to resist ideas that are foreign to its particular narrative, the narratives that it has embraced, the meta narrative that, that is your identity. And so it's, it's, it, again, the, the, the mind resists outside ideas, much like white blood, blood cells fight pathogens. And in inception, this is precisely how the subconscious is explained. That, you know, you try to introduce an, an outside idea in someone's dream state and introduce that from the outside. As soon as it's recognized as something from the outside, the mind attacks it and, and eradicates it. And it prevents the idea from taking root unless, and here's the trick, and this is the trick in Inception, that idea is recognized by the mind as somehow fitting into the pre-existing foundational narratives of that person's inner world, Right? So you have to find a way to find common narrative ground and fit some new lesson or new data point into that common narrative substructure so that the idea can, can, can actually take. And that's, that's, that's what's necessary to really teach. And that's why movies, music, various forms of entertainment, but particularly Movies, television, books, things that have a, a, a clear narrative that people can participate in, those are the most powerful agents of, uh, of identity, morality, teaching that exist. Because what happens is you embrace the narrative and ideas from the outside can be introduced to the mind 
without the mind even recognizing that the idea was introduced. And, the, and so the idea is actually accepted. It's, it actually takes root. It actually begins to have an impact on the, on the mind. So what you're saying is, well, you know, you're learning the language of a world, but there's no outside application to it. That's not entirely true. Mm-hmm. Because what happens is by sharing in another world, in an outside world, a world in which you actually don't have commitments, right? The mm-hmm. beauty of, of, of fantasy and the beauty of, of creating a, an alternate world a world that you that is outside the one that you actually live in and again you know this is true in the in a biblical world right you know you you go back and you read genesis and that's not our world that's a world of you know your right a world world gone by we don't have mm-hmm. you know it's there's no ruskies and 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 americans there where you're rooting for rocky right because you're an american mm-hmm you're placed into that narrative and you are at the mercy of the narrator on what kinds of views and what kinds of commitments you're going to take on, who you're going to identify with. And so what ends up happening is you end up sharing a, a world, sharing a mind with someone else that's foreign to your own mind, your own world, your own experience and then get to engage and encounter how various characters and how various events and how various decisions are made, how those, uh, how, how these things are, are, are transpiring, how people think. Right. Mm-hmm. So then what happens is that shapes the way that you think about analogous things in this world one way or another. And so those stories, even though they're they're only tangentially related to this world, they're really they're, they're you know they're ostensibly about another world. They actually are ways of analogously getting people to think about things in this world and shape the imagination and moral leanings and inclinations of the reader. So that and that also, by the way, goes goes to say that. For those of you who are parents out there and or, you know, even choosing what you want for yourself, if you're choosing for uh, if you're choosing literature for your kids, it's important to understand what kinds of worlds those people are building and what kinds of decisions the 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 authors of these books and the characters of these books are actually pushing because when we read these books, we become, we, we share together with the mind of the person that's actually put us into that world. Those ideas infect us for however long, and they can be good ideas. They can be bad ideas. You know, you can construct a world in which you're actually steering people to think in ways that are really awful. And, I, you know, it's interesting that some of the best authors in history have been phen- phenomenally good at getting people inside the mind of, of, of psychopaths, basically. I mean, one of my favorite books is Crime and Punishment. It's one of the most formative books on, on me in my life. Yeah, me, me too. And Dostoevsky does an unreal job of putting you inside the mind of someone who's basically a lunatic, mm-hmm. a total psychotic. And by doing so, you have you you start to learn that oh my goodness that he is me <laughs> yeah <laughs> right like yeah. th- that 
like I could do the same things that this person did. Like, and that's, that's the thing. That's one of the amazing things about crime and punishment. It's also one of the great things about something like Dune is that, you know, for someone who may be, may be of certain political leanings, some of the lessons that, that come across in Dune would be resisted if they were written about, say, Vietnam, or if they were written about World War II or whatever. But because they're written about an, an area that has no, that, that no one has allegiance to, they actually can be potentially accepted and received, which means that then when that next generation goes to consider what's what's going on in Vietnam or what's going on in, you know, the latest example or Afghanistan or whatever, they may be a little bit more likely to consider some of the data points that they learned from Dune, right? It, it's it's war games. It's it's well, just like that sort of it's 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 war game drills for the mind. Like what you would get at a war college. It's just it's just in a different in a different domain. Well, and it's funny to go back to our our intro of his distant relative being Joseph McCarthy because McCarthy was just it was all overt. Right. Does, does this person have any leanings? And so trying trying to change behavior on an overt level, whereas if Herbert's using science fiction to do that, it's all kind of as you're describing it's it it it's it opens up door into the to a person that that they would never allow otherwise it's just kind of interesting if we're just taking those two people to compare and contrast how right. they went about yeah uh, uh, uh the other in in terms of the other political side McCarthy fighting overtly and Herbert through sci-fi yeah and and Herbert is by no means a communist although no, he no, is no. very he's very suspicious of power yeah and you know, and again, he wants his reader to understand all sorts of you know potential pitfalls and understand the nature of how politics really work and all sorts of things. And he exposes you to some of these things in some of the really, you know, awful in some cases, but either way, really compelling twists and turns in this narrative. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, that's that's my defense of this kind of the this the nature of this kind of uh, of of work, and I, I think it's actually really important for people to be able to read, uh, you know, various types of fantasy and uh, utopian literature and apocalyptic literature, post-apocalyptic literature, these sorts of things, because it tells it it helps teach us a lot about who we are, and it exposes us to the inward world of other people in ways that we, we can't encounter. I have no access to your thoughts, but I can have access to something approximating someone's thoughts by joining in a shared narrative with, uh, you know, that, that was constructed by an author who's putting, you know, sort of indirectly thoughts on paper in that, in that way. So that, that's the real value of this beyond just the enjoyment of it. And I think that's one of the reasons humans enjoy it is, mm. is because it, there is something fundamentally uh, human about being able to, to, to deal with some of these things. Anyway, um, let's go ahead and get into the favorite quotes. And, and there's a number of them in here. Uh, even though you weren't as big of a fan of this book, you've got, you've got a few quotes that I, I see on the, uh, on the show notes here, and I've got, uh, I've got my share as well. So let's go ahead and, uh, and get to that uh, section of the podcast. All right. My first one, and this was uh, repeated quite often in the book, the power to destroy a thing is the absolute control over it. 
So I'm just going to kind of let that one speak for itself, but uh, we find it quite quite often in in the book. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, another one uh, for me is uh, the rebuke to uh, when when, uh, when one of the characters is about to leave a place and is asking another person, oh, "Are you sad about you know having to leave this place?" And, and the other person who's older corrects him and says, "Sad? Nonsense. Parting with friends is a sadness. A place is only a place." And and I think we would do well to remember that all the time. Yeah, my grandpa always said because uh, he um, they would kind of like your your grandparents they would spend half the year up north, half half the year in the south, and a lot of their friends up north uh, didn't like that they did that because you know they were away from them for for six months or something. And my grandpa would always say, "Home is where my hat is. So wherever I wherever I put my hat, that's where where home is." Um, but with that that idea in mind of of it, it was the people that he was around that he that he really enjoyed and it wasn't place, um, but yeah I don't know I, I I've kind of always had a a sentimental connection with place as well, uh, so I and it's I, easy um, to do but it's but it's but it's important it's, it's easy the, it's easy yeah. to, for that to develop and there's nothing wrong with it but it's important to remember that the real attachment should be to people yeah. Yep. All right. Next. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, once men turned their thinking over to machines in the hope that this would set them free, but that only permitted other men with machines to enslave them. So this was was a a comment, uh, a, a quote, in looking back uh, at at what happened. So once men turned their thinking over to machines, in the hope that this would set them free, but but it, it allowed other people with machines to enslave them and. <laughs> You know, this was written in the, in the '60s, but that that could be a good thing to think on as we as we give more and more of our uh, attention and thinking over to machines. It's pretty easy for people to manip- manipulate what we see, and uh, just to be to be aware of that. Um, and and I know we talked a lot about this kind of stuff in in the inevitable episode, but uh, that that one got me uh, got me thinking a little bit. Yeah, that's another good one, um, and one that I almost had on there myself uh, because uh, I especially uh, think that <laughs> we tend to do that. Uh, okay, another one. Uh, think of the fact that a deaf person cannot hear. Then, what deafness may we not all possess? What senses do we lack that we cannot see and cannot hear another world all around us? What is there around us that we cannot, and then it, it gets interrupted in this flow of the narrative, but that we cannot uh, perceive is the, is the idea. And I, I like that. that you know, think of the fact that a deaf person cannot hear. A deaf person doesn't have the experience of really knowing what they lack, unless that person went deaf after the fact. What deafness may we not also possess in the same, same sort of way? Very Walden, Walden-esque. I think like when, when uh, Thoreau was talking about the, the things that we look back on older generations and think, what were you thinking? But we put, we can't see what we're going to be criticized for. So I'll go with another one real quick. Uh, Another one that's very Walden-esque. What is money? Kynes asked if it won't, or what is money? Kynes asked if it won't buy the services you need. You have a character that that was asking, 
you know, whether something could be, you know, well, surely this could be done with enough money. And the person is saying, money is not the problem here. What good is money if it's not going to buy the services you need? The issue is that you need these services to be done, and that's going to require something other than money, isn't it? Mm. And that that gets to one of the real uh, themes of this book, which has to do with the distinction between uh, money as a as an as an agent of uh, of of power. As a as a tool of power, as a uh, as a motivational as as an aspect of motivation, versus allegiance as the uh, and 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 trust and faith as a uh, source of power and as a source of uh, of strength and so on, and looking at that looking at the differences between these things, you know, rule rule by by gaining the allegiance of those around you versus rule by having money. And these sorts of things, and and looking at some of the dis- differences there, that's a big theme throughout this book. Mm-hmm. My next one starts with uh, "We came from Caledon, uh, paradise world for our form of life. There existed no need in Caledon to build a physical paradise or a paradise of the mind. We could see the actuality all around us, and the price we paid was the price men have always paid for achieving a paradise in this life. We went soft. We lost our edge." So that's such a good quote. And it yeah. gets to that, you know, the, 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 uh, one of the greatest enemies of success is success, yeah. right? It's, it's so difficult to sustain success because you lose your edge. Yeah. Uh, and there, there's a related quote just, just after that, where it says, if you were going to raise tough, strong, ferocious men, what environmental conditions would you impose upon them? And how could you win the loyalty of such men? There are proven ways play on the certain knowledge of their superiority, the mystique of a certain covenant, the esprit of shared suffering. It can be done. It has been done on many worlds in many times. So it's the opposite thing, right? Hardship can actually bring about that tough ferocity and a certain esprit of, of, of shared suffering that actually brings in, that, 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 that fosters a... Uh, a certain pleasure to it, which is, which is an interesting paradox. And I I thought, I thought that was an interesting uh, piece to get brought together. Now I'm going to go with another one. I've got a couple additional here. Um, let's see. There is probably no more terrible instant of enlightenment than the one in which you discover your father is a man with human flesh. I've seen that a lot. That's, I mean, yeah. In, in other places, it's yeah, and and it's true. Yeah, it's true. It, it it is one of those things where, you know, at growing up, you and you hear people talk about this all the time. You know, growing up, I thought grown ups had it together, knew what they were doing, and all this. And now that I'm a grown up, I realize that they just really had no idea what they were doing, and were just trying to make it up as they went along. And when you realize that, it. It's, it's a, it's a terrible instant of enlightenment of, wait, when I grow up, that means, that doesn't mean I'm actually going to have things figured out. Yeah. Yep. Um, here's another one of mine. The mind can go either direction under stress toward positive or toward negative. So, sorry, not toward, <laughs> toward positive or toward the negative on or off. Think of it as a spectrum whose extremes are unconsciousness at the negative end and hyperconsciousness at the positive end. 
The way the mind will lean under stress is strongly influenced by training. Oh yeah. And again, that's really true. That is so good. And then I, I, I talk about this in another podcast episode, but I, I always just think back to, uh, uh, the, the Costa Rica incident when I was, when I was robbed at gunpoint, my mind, I, I did the first option there. My mind just went blank and that is not, not the way you want to go. <laughs> uh, but I guess you probably don't want to go hyper-conscious either to where you think you can fight your way out of it. Hyper-conscious or, is fine if you know how to respond if you've been trained. in that hyper-conscious yeah. state. You want to go yeah. hyper-conscious to the point of trained. right you want to yeah. you want to get into that flow state where everything slows down so that you can make good decisions yeah and avoid bullets like uh the matrix yes exactly exactly it would have helped when you were held at gunpoint for sure yeah so yeah. but um, yeah that's uh and and that'll play into a lot of the the books we have coming up but the that uh, that idea then of, of training as well yeah and and dodging bullets yeah <laughs> what do you despise by this, you are truly known. Hmm. Oof. Yeah. That, 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 I'm just going to leave that one sit. Yikes. All right. And then there's... Uh, f- uh, let's see. Um, he realized suddenly that it was one thing to see the past occupying the presence, or the present, but the, re- but the true test of prescience was to see the past in the future. So it's one thing to see the past occupying the present, but the real test, the true test of prescience was to see the past in the future. So not to see how the past has brought things up to the present. Anybody can potentially do that. But when you can see that the, how the past is embedded in the future, now you're starting to get somewhere. That's an interesting distinction well and that reminds me of uh the most recent ferris podcast episode where he interviewed ray ray dalio dalio Dalio, yeah Yeah. dalio um and ray dalio said he's a huge uh consumer of of history and he does that very thing he tries to he tries to see something that happened in the 30s being replayed right now he's not trying to see how what happened in the 30s led up to what's happening now he tries to see where the same exact or, or very similar situations that we have now that were in the 30s or the 1800s or, or way back when, he tries to find different parts in history to help him make sense of what, what is happening right now. Uh, that, was a, that was a really interesting part of that, uh, that particular podcast episode. Let's see. I, I'll do... Uh, my final one here, or do yep. you want? You've got a few. Got a, you've got a few more. Once you yeah, do I can. I can go a couple of those uh, pretty quickly, though. So go ahead and do yours. Okay. The concept of progress acts as a protective mechanism to shield us from the terrors of the future, and and along with with your quote about uh, finding out, discovering your father as a man, uh, this is something that that I've thought about probably more in the last ten years as opposed to to early life, but, uh, this, this thought of like things always getting better and, you know, we've got new technology coming and and we've got this and, and just kind of this idea that things are always getting better, constantly being reminded of the progress, whether it's technological or advancements in, uh, ideas or, or different things and to, to shield us from, 
from a potentially horrible future that could be happening. Um, you had a, a quote that kind of tied in with that. Yeah, actually, I had picked um, uh, another quote about progress. This it was, it was related that religion often partakes of the myth of progress that shields us from the terrors of an uncertain future. So it's building on the on the quote that you had had, uh, and this idea that you know religion is is actually fostering that larger myth that 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 oh you know things are getting better and you know we're we're progressing towards something. In, instead of there being uncertainty in in the future, and and actually it's interesting because uh, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a good bit about this as well. This uh, what he referred to as the as the myth of progress. Uh, we'll link it in the show notes. Uh, Lewis's article, "Funeral of a Great Myth," uh, or "The Funeral of a Great Myth," uh, and Lewis basically says, you know, that the modern uh, notion of progress is you know completely a um it's it, it, it is it, it's not the way that things actually work that there's a, a picture of a reality that is that results in in you know ever present progress and this was you know every bit as as popular in his day as it is in ours i mean all the way up to um uh nietzsche you know expecting that if we could just eliminate uh the mercy for the poor and, uh, and, you know, taking care of the sick and, and the, the, uh, the weak among us and weed those people out that we could finally finish evolving into Ubermenschen. Uh, you know, if we would just make sure that power, power, uh, you know, was properly at its, at its, uh, uh, at the, at the top rung in our, uh, ethic that it should be, that we would just progress into this final, into something beyond human that, that, you know, would be even greater. This idea of progress goes all the way down to that. And, uh, and Lewis writes pretty, uh, pretty heavily against, uh, against this idea, what he refers to as developmentalism or, um, you know, this, this, uh, great myth that, uh, that things are, are going to consistently get better. So when what's funny about your quote is, uh, it says that religion often partakes of the myth of progress. I would say Christianity is kind of the opposite. In Christianity tends to be yes, pretty, pretty bleak future. It 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 is. It's a, the interesting thing there is that that on the one on the one hand Christianity is very is, is bleak in its view of human of humanity, in its view of the direction of the of the present world and the present world order. But at the same point, it still steps in and says, "Yeah, but things are going to be are eventually are eventually going to be brought right and are eventually going to be set into proper order." So that even if it's not progressing proper, you know, it's not actually progressing into something. You know, the the steps that we see now aren't actually going to build into something better. They're actually going to either stay the same or p- perhaps get worse. There's not no reason for any expectation of improvement in the general condition of things in that in that respect. At some point, there's going to be a fundamental break with how things work in the world, and then God's going to set things right. So at least that 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 does still provide some uh, reassurance against uncertainty in that if you are on the side of right and you fight and, and you are you are uh, on the side of allegiance uh, with with the justice of God, then you know, when things are set right, then you'll be, you'll be okay. So there isn't uncertainty in that sense as well. So you could potentially apply a similar critique, even though it's not 
necessarily that of progress in the mm-hmm. fundamental Christian myth. Mm-hmm. All right, let's see. Uh, a couple other things. I'll, I'll I'll go through a few really rapidly here. Um, one of my favorites, I really liked this one, uh, was uh, we can say that Muad'Dib learned rapidly because his first training was in how to learn. And the first lesson of all was the basic trust that he could learn. It is shocking to find how many people do not believe they can learn and how many more believe learning to be difficult. That's a brilliant wow. quote. And it, it highlights so much of what makes, uh, makes teaching difficult in some cases, but it makes life so much more difficult for so many people in that they've really never learned how to learn and learn well, nor have they learned that, that real learning, that, that actual, actually of the application and process of learning is not only not that difficult, but it's a joy. Mm-hmm. And if you learn that, everything in the world is open to you. And I mean, that should really be the first, first point of education. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That, and, and, and what we do a terrible job of in, in, in the U.S. education system one of the things we do absolutely the worst is training people how to learn, and we, we also find ways to make learning un, uh, unpleasant throughout the school experience, which to mm-hmm. me, that is a twofold tragedy that Crime. costs us a tremendous amount of, of productivity and a, and a great deal of joy uh, in our society. It's, it is a crime that we don't teach people very early in life how to learn. Fundamentally, this is this is how to learn, and then uh, help reinforce the joy of learning. If we did that, it'd be amazing how much better our education system would be, because you wouldn't really need to do as much on some of those other things. But well, and you you couldn't really blame too many other people either. Yep, you you really couldn't. So, uh, final quote: Deep in the human consciousness is a pervasive need Un- for unconscious. A, or, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. Deep in the human unconscious is a pervasive need for a logical universe that makes sense. But the real universe is always one step beyond logic. (laughs) So, yes, it's logical, and it's one step beyond logic. I like that. I I related to that. That's pretty good. All right, so with that, we're going to go ahead and uh, enter the potential spoiler zone of the podcast. Uh, that's going to, uh, uh, there, you know, so far we've talked about uh, big picture things. We've talked about a number of quotes and so on, but nothing that really would impact uh, a person's ability to read this book without, uh, or you know, basically spoiler free. Uh, but we're now going to get into possible discussion or discussion that could possibly have some spoilers. So for uh, if you want to read this book, if you haven't read the book and you want to uh, read this book and avoid spoilers, then go ahead and skip forward about 32 and a half minutes to 131.53, and we'll go ahead and wrap it up uh, with more big picture stuff at that point. But uh, for the rest of you, uh, now we'll go ahead and get into a little bit more uh, detail on potential spoilers, although we probably won't get too far into that. So Eric, you you had some stuff you definitely wanted to uh, to talk about here. Yeah, and mine mine just had more to do with the the style of writing. 
Uh, one thing I really liked is that uh, Frank would do three different things oh, yeah, on a first name basis with him now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now that uh, now that I've uh, I've shared with the, with the podcast community how how uh, I was not very impressed with the book. Well, I was impressed, but just I, I just don't like it. I don't like uh, sci-fi, is what I've I've concluded, and I, I was hoping I would after this book. But one thing I did appreciate was uh, when, whenever characters were in a dialogue, you would you would hear what the character was saying, so you would hear what was actually coming out of their mouth, but he would also write what the character was thinking, and so that would be italicized, and then you would also hear what other characters were thinking about what was going on. So I know, I know this happens a lot in, in, in novels and in, in, uh, in, in different writings, but it was just cool because you got, you got a lot of diff different perspective on what was going on. It wasn't just what was being said, but, but actually what was being thought while it was being, the thing was being said and then what other people thought about what was being said, both outwardly and, and inwardly. And it just made for a, a really interesting read, especially in one particular chapter where they were they were sitting down for a dinner. Oh and yeah, it was that. I mean, that chapter alone was just unbelievable. I mean, just the the level of of looks and thoughts and and behind the scenes stuff going on. That chapter, that chapter blew me away. Yeah, and he has a way of doing and like he 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 doesn't tend to overload with thoughts. He just, you know, and in many cases in cer with certain characters, uh Kynes for example, you don't really get get what he's truly thinking inside until uh until later. But when he does start reporting on thoughts, you start to realize like, "Oh, there's some serious stuff going on here." And one of the things that I found interesting about that is how compelling that was in terms of it's hard to believably write how people think, right? That's one of the things that makes Dostoevsky so brilliant is he can, he's actually capable of getting you to think, getting you to believe that his character is thinking the way that you're, his character is thinking because you're, you, you, it's the way you might think in that situation. You yeah, know, that's one of the yeah, things you feel that, like you're going in with him. It's one of the things that Chesterton ta uh, said about uh, Jane Austen is that she was the only female writer that he had he had read that that uh that that was able to uh accurately represent at least in his view male motivations and thoughts and so on and so you know and he paralleled that to he he contrasted that to the Bronte twins where he's like yeah they, their idea of how a man thinks is not really realistic so but he's like you know Austin on the other hand like she gets psychology and when you get an author that really understands how people think and how people function that really makes a a a, a story and a narrative sing and and, and i think uh uh herbert does a really good job in in doing that in this he he understands psychology yeah yeah it was it, it was excellent and, and as you said i mean the the italicized thoughts i mean they'd usually just be a sentence so it's not like it it's not like you're digging digging today, deep, but he told uh, himself. yeah, not like you're digging deep, but like uh, it it really does help help drive the uh, the story along and, and make it a lot more intriguing. Yeah, I I thought you know there were some interesting um, the the it, it, this it, now 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 it could get complex, but I thought 
it the 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 analysis of leadership the but it's analysis by narrative revelation that that the way that leadership is 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 addressed and political intrigue is addressed is really fascinating because you get to see how different leaders lead differently and you get to see some of the potential pitfalls and some of the benefits and some of the weaknesses of various management styles and various ways of of uh of, of either leading or dictating or whatever that I, I thought that was really one of the more interesting layers of this story is looking at how say the Harkonnens rule versus you know their their rivals who rule very differently and each one has weaknesses that can be manipulated or taken advantage of by the by the opposition but then it may like taking advantage of that 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 weakness may actually make you vulnerable in another area because their counter it's it's sort of like a you know one of those role playing games where uh well you know you have you know a rating of 9 here but of course that puts you at a 1 here versus you know you might have a 6 and a 4 you know you can only have a 10 and you have to choose where you put your points kind of thing there's a lot of that kind of discussion about leadership and about how certain things work uh, that is working across the narrative. You get to see it in action. And I thought that was really compelling. Yeah. And, and like to the point where the enemies, they kind of rule on high. He's the guys. One of the leaders is so fat. He can, he can't really hardly move around um, and just compared that with, Paul, he's he's with the he's fighting with the guys like he's he's in the trenches and kind of it, we, we see him becoming a leader through that. Yeah, Leading uh, from on a throne versus leading from in front of your army kind of thing. You see yeah. that difference between them. You see uh, another another case where, you know, Paul's father is leading through loyalty and through love. But then, of course, he's vulnerable because he doesn't have the money to potentially manipulate some of the other characters. And, uh, you know, some of the people who, for whatever reason, because of his lack of cruelty, his enemy's cruelty makes him makes him vulnerable as well because they can, you know, take advantage of, uh, of, of kidnapping someone very important or, you know, abusing someone very important uh, that then, you know, gives someone who, even though they're loyal to their master... They're not as loyal to their master as they are to, say, you know, a loved one, and now they're willing to to flip. You know, these sorts of things. The the, mo the the motivations of the various underlings and how all that works is really really interesting. I just I just just see the uh, Robert the Bruce scene in Braveheart where he's talking to his father. I I want what he has. I <laughs> want I want to, I want to love as he loves like. Comparing William Wallace's leadership to, to the King of England, Edward the First. Yeah, yeah, and and I mean, and, as as portrayed in the movie, at least, which is right, which is very maybe one percent correct. Yeah, if that, but you know, it's not it's not a matter of it being correct historically. It you know, in in Braveheart, that parallel, that comparison, is, uh, is an important one. Right. That that is. Uh, and and Robert the Bruce, of course, in Braveheart. Those of you who haven't seen it, none more spoilers. But 
Robert the Bruce in Braveheart, of course, winds up having to turn on the man that he most admires, right? Mm-hmm. Because he has, because the, the 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 very person that he doesn't want to have to give over to, that person holds power over him in other areas, in other ways. And it's mm-hmm. the same way in this book where you can see all these layers, you know, in terms of marriage, in terms of, uh, of, you know, various business connections, in terms of how do you, how are you going to choose to, to, uh, to engage in your management and in, in your leadership and the ways that you choose to do that involve choosing what your weaknesses are going to be and what your potential strengths are going to be. And all of it, exposes you to some of the, the flaws of the people that you're with and also of your own flaws. So what what's the way to do it? Well, and, and the, the, the first big test in the book is how does Paul do under pain? Right. Suffering. How can he handle suffering? And of course, the, the, one of the things that's really fascinating about that test is what's the test for? Like, what do they call that test? It's a test to see whether he's human. As opposed to sort of the, the subhuman, uh, yeah, it's it, it's interesting. It's it's whether he's really human or whether he's a a subhuman in a human body, right? And so you know you have this distinction. He's he's saying, but the pain, the pain, and she and, and it says pain. She sniffed a human can override any nerve in the body. Right? And then, of course, he's telling him this litany against fear, or he's telling himself this litany against fear through the whole test. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. And you have this idea of, and and, and this is established right at the beginning of the book, that in order to truly be one, or in order to truly be human, you have to be able and willing to go through suffering that demonstrates your ability to distinguish between that which is painful but is not actually a part of you and is necessary for the advancement of what you you know what you of your growth as a human being and all these other things and that which is which actually brings harm and if it's just pain, a, a human can overcome this, and a human is willing to experience pain. And one of the things that's you know, and of course, this is in the in the uh, uh, in the wake of of a time where they had you know gotten this is you know post apocalyptic in one sense, in that they had had a time where the uh, they'd built computers or machines to do their thinking for them, and they had basically it had led to humans being sort of less than human. So they Skynet. Yeah, it's it's, this guy net. yeah, it's that sort of thing, <laughs> uh, or the Cylons or whatever. Um, you know, this this concept that reappears over and over and over again in uh, in science fiction. Um, but you know, this is uh, basically a test to see whether or not they whether or not you're going to overcome this, 
whether or not you're able to overcome this aspect of things and being willing to suffer is a part of what it is to be human and being able to suffer is what, uh, what, uh, uh, is a big part of what it is to be human. And you contrast that with the, the enemy leadership that it was all about pleasure. Right, right. They, they do everything they can to avoid any sort of experience, experience, um, with, that, that would be, that would involve suffering. Right. So, I mean, even down to, you know, the fat, 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 fat ruler has a mech suit that helps him move around because, you know, he's lost his ability to move around. The mech suit is avoiding his having to uh, having any sort of outside force engage upon him. Yeah. So, you know, that group by their trying to find ways around suffering by using their wealth and power they become decreasingly human, whereas the the most human people are the Fremen, right? The Fremen, of course, you know, the free men, of, but the Fremen are the most human in many respects, even though they're savages, effectively, right? And they're the most human because they're the most plugged into their ecology, the most plugged into their own suffering and their own connection with with. Uh, with nature and all of and and all that all that it is to be a part of your larger uh, environment. So I, there's a lot of interesting layers there. I I did like this particular um this particular quote where when uh, when he right after he's gone for uh, gone gone through that that initial test, the old woman tells Paul, "Grave this on your memory, lad." A world is supported by three things. She held up four big knuckled fingers. The learning of the wise, the justice of the great, the prayers of the righteous, and the valor of the brave. But all of these are as nothing. She closed her fingers into a fist without a ruler who knows the art of ruling. Make that the science of your tradition. And that in many respects is what this book is about, right? I mean, there, you can talk, and again, we talked in the last segment about how Herbert intended this book to be about a lot of things, but one of the things it's definitely about is the art of ruling and how rule and management have to work. And in that sense, I mean, again, getting back to your complaint about, well, you know, you're learning a language for something that doesn't apply, if you look at the ways that different people rule and the pitfalls and the downsides and some of the, the, the blind, blind spots and also the advantages of different things, it does say a lot about how to, how to manage. There's some executive lessons in this book. Yeah, yeah. And I, I enjoyed that part of it. And then uh, later on, we see another, uh, another reflection on this where a leader you see is one of the things that distinguishes a mob from a people a leader maintains the level of individuals too few individuals and a people reverts to a mob so you have to have liberty a leader doesn't keep people from having liberty a leader who does it right, who does it properly, maintains liberty in the people enough to make sure that the people doesn't just become a mob. A leader becomes a preserver of individual liberty. 
This is one of the things philosophically Herbert really wants to get across in this book. And, and you, you also see, uh, see uh, elsewhere where you know, it, it talks about eventually th- these, these savages that are, you know, that, that, you know, th- these Fremen savages that, you know, throughout the book, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of primed to be afraid of because of the way that the book is written in terms of perspective at this point. The, uh, the, uh, the Fremen, as they gain a leader, you, he- you, you hear this quote. It says, you see, gentlemen, they have something to die for. They've discovered they're a people. Their awakening, and 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 that again gets back to this reflection of you're only human, you're only a human people, you're only a people. Once you've discovered not that there's something to live for, but something to die for. Only once there's something that you're willing to suffer and die for is do you are you actually at a point of being a people or being fully human. Because animals have that, and, and you can see this kind of reflection in, in, in uh, uh, the way Herbert writes this, animals have this self-preservation instinct and the desire to stay alive and to live. But humans can go a step further to where there's something that's worth even dying for. And that's something that, that can distinguish between, you know, that which is... In, in the in the in the idiom of the book, truly human, and that which isn't. So I I really liked the, those particular themes. Yeah, that's good stuff. And that gets to your second point. Looking at just at the show notes in terms of what the actual source of water uh, or of of of, uh, of life is. Yeah, and that that was that was cool. Um, so they're on a dry planet, and blood is not the most important thing about life water is to where they have these suits that I guess recycle any sweat or moisture so that it can be reused. And, uh, when someone dies, they talk about getting their, their water. And so that no, like no water ever goes to waste on, on this planet. And it's interesting too, because they come from a planet of abundant water so it's it's a huge uh, it's a huge shift in in how they think about precious resources and then it 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 flips everything up on its on its head too to where if you spit at somebody it's a token of respect yeah cuz you're willing to spend your water on that person yeah yep and if you cry for somebody uh, that's uh that is a gift they say it's, it was a gift of the shadow world tears they would be sacred beyond a doubt so it, it was uh, cool to think about things in that way. And then uh, the, the main, the main uh, item on the planet is spice. And that's the, their most precious, precious treasure. And a lot of people that have written about the book say that that's analogous to oil for us, uh, where oil is kind of our main, our, our big uh, item that's in the ground and and then just the way in this book that spice is connected to the worms, the uh, riding or the sandworms. Right. And that's and, one of the things that's really interesting is that, you know, everybody wants the spice, but they're terrified of these worms. And it's not until very late in the book that suddenly you find out like, and you can kind of, I mean, 
you start to guess earlier in the book, but, but, but late in the book, you discover how it actually works. And the worms that everybody's terrified of are the, are the source of the spice. Yeah. <laughs> and, but everyone's afraid of them. And to overcome your fear, you have to actually ride the sandworm. So I, th I thought there was a lot of neat uh, analogy in that too, of, of overcoming your fears in the sense of, and, and it was hard for, for Paul, the, the main, main character for him to, f to first do that. And he's, he's around a group of people who have, have been riding sandworms forever, but, uh, but for him to, to finally overcome that fear and it's, it's the main thing. I mean, a sandworm can kind of, can take out a whole factory. It can take out a whole group of people, but you can also get on top of it and ride it. So it's it just a, a lot of neat connection points in, in all of this with the water, the spice, the sandworm connection with the spice. The way to kill a sandworm is to drown it. Uh, so just a lot of neat, neat components in, in how all that, that stuff worked together in the book. Yeah. And, and again, it's fascinating that, you know, spice is so needed and it's so valuable, but the source of the spice, again, it's, 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 it's like one of those RPO or I mean, gee, RPO, I've been doing too many uh, football podcasts. Uh, it's like one of those RPG games again, where, you know, this, you know, or, or rock, paper, scissors, right. You know, this beats this, which beats this, which beats this, and it all goes into a circle. And again, everything is interrelated and he, you know, th that, that kind of, uh, uh, ecological perspective is something that, that Herbert really wants to emphasize, uh, in this book. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there, I mean, and, and again, uh, the same thing is the case in terms of how he puts religion and politics together. I mean, you get, uh, uh, what's interesting is as you get compounds of various aspects of the world, they can be really strong, but then they also are doubly brittle, right? So you get this quote, when religion and politics travel in the same cart, the riders believe nothing can stand in their way. Their movements become headlong, faster and faster and faster. They put, all, they put aside all, all thought of obstacles and forget that a precipice does not show itself to the man in a blind rush until it's too late. So, you know, religion serves as a, as a, as a great, uh, uh, critiquer or, you know, a, a great counter to politics in many cases. But as soon as they begin, uh, working together, as soon as they team up, now you have potential, you know, additional double potential danger because the, the thing that may have provided vision to warn you in the political realm, as soon as it become, as soon as it gets, gets, uh, uh, appropriated by the thing that it was previously critiquing. Now, now you're doubly, now you're doubly blind. So there's some interesting stuff in terms of how they, they deal with that. Yeah. And you had one other quote there at the bottom about, about religion in the, Oh yeah. Yeah. All men must see that the teaching of religion by rules and rote is largely a hoax. The proper teaching is recognized with ease. You can know it without fail because it awakens within you that sensation which tells you this is something you've always known. And this is something I have, I've had frequently in my life is, to me, the great writers are the ones where, and, and the, you know, the, the, the great truths that I've encountered over my life are the ones where they're not telling me something I haven't known. It's all of a sudden like, oh man, like, yeah, 
that's the best, like, that's how to, how to put words to what I've known before. That phenomenon is, you know, that is a phenomenon that we, that we tend to have when we come into, into contact with that, which we recognize to be true. It has that immediate, like, oh yeah, like you've put words to what I've always known, but haven't had words for. And C.S. Lewis has some great quotes along those yeah, Those yeah. Lines. Believe by or uh, surprised by joy has a lot of discussion of this phenomenon as well. That you know, great art connects with that internal longing that is there from the time that you're a child on, and you know, it's it's uh, that and for him, all truth is is just uh, you know, further lines in a in in one grand song, right? It's uh, it you know, it's it's the just you 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 hear the uh, the chorus of a song that, you know, you've always, you've always known, but you, you, you've not known the words to, you know, these sorts of things. It's, there's all sorts of different ways of, of this, uh, uh, you know, every song is just a variation of the great song. And Herbert, again, explores that here. And, and he does so in some ways by finding all sorts of ways to syncretize for the narrative purpose, uh, the, you know, terminology of multiple religions, the, uh, uh, you know, a number of wisdom sayings that are parallel across religions and all sorts of different things. And, you know, he, he, he tries to, to take various pieces of, of say Hinduism and Islam and Christianity and, and Judaism and, uh, and, you know, various other, uh, forms of religious practice and, and belief and, and, meld them into a futuristic like okay well we've exceeded these sectarian divisions we've gotten past that to a deeper truth that's reflected in this particular you know larger religious way of thinking that 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 gets to the bottom of what all of these were trying to get to in a more primitive form you know centuries ago sort of thing uh and again that's a, a, the way that he does it if you know those religious traditions if you know various religious traditions fairly well uh you can see all sorts of different places where uh where you know he's borrowing from here and 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 adding to that and subtracting this etc it's 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 a it's an interesting little uh game of um uh you know of discovering where he's hidden what and and what he's doing well and uh question for you on the the for the oc bible that they keep referring to what what does that refer to is that the bible like from the other land or is that is that their specific bible yeah so this is uh uh this is a a narrative thing um that it it doesn't exist it's a creation of his back uh, you know, it's his, um, uh, it's a, uh, a creation of his particular world that again, he's created all sorts of additional, um, aspects of it that exceed it. So he has all these quotes from the OC Bible and there's also in the appendix, you get to see, uh, some discussion of the religion of Dune, right. And the various forms of, practice and all this from the, uh, B'nai uh, Gesserit and these sorts of things. Um, the, the, uh, the, the Bible that he's talking about, the, the OC Bible is the orange Catholic Bible. And it's, you know, alleged, and it's, and it's in the, in the mythology that he's, uh, putting together in the history 
underlying all of this stuff. So it's, you know, part of those edges that's, it's out beyond the edges. It's the followers of the 14 sages whose book was the orange Catholic Bible and whose views are expressed in the commentaries and others, you know, uh, you, you have these sorts of things. So the orange Catholic Bible is the book of the 14 sages, right? Okay. Cause so, like, uh, there, there's one quote here, uh, Je- Jessica Paul's mother's is thinking. So this is one of those quotes in italics. And she says, a time to get and a time to lose. Jessica thought, quoting to herself from the OC Bible, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time for love and a time to hate, time of war, time of peace, which is Ecclesiastes. So that, so sometimes like the OC Bible, it, w- it would be things that we recognize, but then other times it seemed to be other, other things. It, right. Well, I mean, and if you know other, um, other, uh, aspects, uh, of the, um, uh, you know, of other religious traditions, you recognize that many of the other things that are quoted from the Orange Catholic Bible, from the OC Bible, uh, those things are quotes or, you know, very near quotes or paraphrases from, say, Islam or, you know, the Bhagavad Gita or different things where he's pulling in different ideas there uh, and, and and boiling that down. So, uh, okay. and, and, and again, in the... Uh, uh, in the appendix, he, you know, gives you a little bit of the history of this. So what happens is, you know, after all sorts of different wars and generations of violence and all this, it says the leaders of religions whose followers had spilled the blood of billions began meeting to exchange views. It was a move encouraged by the Spacing Guild, which was beginning to build its monopoly over all interstellar travel, and by the Bene Gesserit, who are banding the sorceresses. And what they do is they come together for ecumenical purposes, and they get to various religious agreements. And so uh, it says, for almost seven years, this particular commission of ecumenical translators, these leaders of religions who are trying to get together to you know, make something... Uh, syncretistic out of their pre- previously uh, sectarian religions, Af- at the s- after seven years, they a- unveil the orange Catholic Bible. And, you know, here is a work with dignity and meaning, they said. Here is a way to make humanity a- aware of itself as a total creation of God. The men of CET were likened to archaeologists of ideas, inspired by God in the grandeur of, of rediscovery. It was said they had brought to light the vitality of great ideals overlaid by the deposits of centuries, and that they had sharpened the moral imperatives that come out of a religious conscience. So basically, it's his idea that, you know, if we could just get past some of the the specific uh, uh, iterations of this to say, no, 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 it, you know, it, it has to be in this particular sectarian way that, you know, a lot of, that the that various uh, religious insights are shared across uh, across religions and across cultures, and that you could more or less kind of summarize those in some ways. And his way of representing that is this uh, fictional orange Catholic Bible. Okay, cool. One one other question for you: Have you seen this movie? I have not. I haven't either. I mean, I, after reading this, I looked at it to to potentially rent it, but. Um... It's, I think it's from the '80s, so it looks looks a little old. And um, and then I was just thinking, you know, how do you how do you even begin to get a book this rich and this big into a two-hour movie? 
Yeah, well, and especially in some of the in, in the era in which that one was done, it, it 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 I can't imagine that it would be quite as well done as it as it might be. Yikes. Yeah. Well, yeah, special effects would be would be found wanting. But yeah. well, well, should we get into uh should we conclude? Yeah, I mean, I think we can we can get back to the big picture. So uh uh and and conclude on that um yeah, so I'll let you go first. Yeah, so uh, when when thinking about the books of the the books of, of Titans, there's there's in in ranking them or or thinking of of how much I enjoyed them. There's there's kind of two different criteria. One is how how good is the book? I mean, is it a well written book? Is it complex? Does it have all all these uh, features of what make a, a good novel or a, or a good book? And and then there's also like, did I enjoy it? Did me, Eric? I personally did I enjoy this book, and so on the on the first part there, yes, it's a it's a great book, great piece of work, uh, lots going on, ton of stuff way over my head. Uh, so I know if I read it again, I'd get a lot more, you know, a, a lot there. And then there there's books, more books that go along with the series. But on the second part of it, I just didn't enjoy it, and uh, I, I'm not a fan of it, and. I just think like I've got this burning desire to read war and peace. And instead of reading a seven, 800 page book of Dune, I would have rather have read something like war and peace. And so there's only so much time in your life to read some of these bigger, bigger books. I just, for me personally, I would have rather have read something like war and peace uh, than, than Dune. That's (laughs) not to negate the, the power of this book. Uh, it was excellent. I loved the dialogue, all that kind of stuff. But uh, I just, I was not a fan. Yeah, well, I, on the other hand, uh, really liked it. And I'll probably end up reading more in this series. So, uh, uh, and that doesn't mean I won't read War and Peace as well when we uh, finally put that on our list for next year, I suppose. Yeah. But um, but yeah, uh, I just, I found this very compelling. Uh, and I, I'm, as much as you're not, uh, a fan of 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 sci-fi and space and all that stuff. I I'm kind of a sucker for it, so this was very much up my alley. I I love fantasy and and sci-fi type literature. Don't get enough time to read it, but this being on the list, I was this is one of one of the, my favorites so far. So um you know, I everything that from the the way that he handled the religion and politics aspects to the ecology stuff um i i love there's one other quote i have to get in there the untrained might miss that collapse until it was too late that's why the highest function of ecology is the understanding of consequences and you see throughout this book all of this idea of unintended consequences and intended consequences having unintended consequences right so i just love the way that 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 this is so thoroughly layered i think it's a classic i think in you know a hundred years this will this will be another book that will be studied as long as there as long as um certain demographics of of authors are still allowed to be studied at that point uh in literature classes, I think that this is going to be one of those classics of the century in which it was written or of the era in which it was written, uh, and, uh, is, is one of those that's worth reading for just about everybody. Unless of course you, uh, are too old for, uh, fairy tales and fantasy and, and sci-fi and not yet old enough for them, uh, again. So, uh, yeah, so I, 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 I really enjoyed it. It's awesome. 
Yeah, maybe maybe uh, maybe after my midlife cri- midlife crisis, I can uh, can revisit it. Yeah, your daughter's getting just old enough where she's going to be, uh, you know, give her a few years and she'll want this sort of book, and that's that's when Daddy will start uh, bringing and getting re- returning to some of these, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, that'd be fun. I mean, I mean, I'm looking forward to reading the Narnia series to her, and yeah, yeah, that's fun stuff like that. So. All right, well, let's get uh, let's that's going to go ahead and do it for us today. Let's get out of here uh, now. Before we do, just a reminder: you can follow along with us at booksoftitans.com. You can. Also, interact with us on Twitter or Instagram at Books of Titans. If you haven't done so, please subscribe to the podcast. Find all of our past episodes through iTunes. Oh, I'm sorry. Apple Podcasts. The Android Marketplace or your podcast manager of choice. May we recommend, and we are not uh, actually sponsored by them, but may we recommend Overcast, which is a tremendous podcast manager. If you are enjoying the podcast, please recommend us to friends give us five star ratings share everything possible you know write write a letter to your grandmother about how she's got it got to uh download our 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 stuff and how much it'll it'll make her appreciate and love literature once again we'll be back soon to discuss the next book which will be heraclitean fire by erwin chalgroff on behalf of Eric Rostad, I'm Jason Staples. This has been the Books of Titans podcast. Thanks for listening. Now keep listening, keep reading, and keep improving. And keep it selectively real. I made this.